As a reminder, please turn off your cameras and mute your microphones. Uh, all these functions are available through the menu bar that pops up when you hover over the bottom of your Teams window. Live captioning is also available by clicking the three dots, dots which are the More Option button, and clicking Turn On Live Captions. Now, before we begin the seminar today, we have a few announcements. Next week's seminar is May 19th, and it will be given by Melody French. Uh, the next All Hands meeting is this Friday, May 14th at 11 a.m. Pacific. And we also, Austin Elliott will be giving a talk, a virtual talk on Teams at 7 p.m. on May 27th called Where Earthquakes Hide in the Desert. A link for information about that talk we posted in the chat. Today, our speaker is Jorg Dresden. Uh, and if you have any questions for today's speaker, you can either type them into the chat or raise your hand. We'll be reading them out at the very end. And However, if you want to ask the question in person, feel free to raise your hand and we'll call on you to unmute yourself and you can ask it in person. And when you do, please turn on your video. And I think that's all we have. And so now I'll hand it over to Brian Kilgore, who will introduce our speaker. Hey, today I'm very pleased to introduce our seminar speaker, Georg Driesen. Georg is a professor of geology at the University of Potsdam and headed the Close By Geomechanics and Rheology Group at the Geoforschung Zentrum Potsdam from 1992 to 2017. He finished his PhD in Structural Geology at the University of Bonn in 1984 and his Habilitation in 1990. Between 1989 and 1993, he was a research scientist in the Rock Physics Group at the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His research interests include rock mechanics and geomechanics, wellbore stability problems, reservoir stimulation and induced seismicity, physics of earthquakes and faulting, scaling relations of geologic processes, and the constitutive behavior of rocks. He is co-PI of an international continental fault drilling program project at the North Anatolian Fault in Turkey, and is involved in several industry and European Union funded projects focusing on geomechanics, unconventional reservoir rocks, and geothermal energy. Georg is also a founder of two startup companies active in geomechanics and microseismics. Today, Georg will discuss his work entitled Seismic Moment Evolution During Hydraulic Stimulations and Enhanced Geothermal System Projects, Insights from Lab and Field Tests. And with that, I hand over the virtual podium to Georg. Thank you. Thank you. Um very much, Brian. Uh, it's kind of unusual that I cannot see the audience, but, but meanwhile, we're all used to this. So before I start, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's very nice of you that uh, you give us an opportunity to, to show our work here. Um, I'd like to acknowledge my co-workers, Jagosh Kwiatek, senior scientist in our group as a seismologist, Lei Wang and Stefan Benz, our bright young PhD students who just finished, Eric Kuribaki, is a senior scientist in rock mechanics. Um, then there's Taro Sarno. He's um, one of the leading figures uh, of the company uh, of a project that I will introduce in a second. Peter Mellon was a cooperator uh, in, in this field project that I'll introduce. And Marco Bonov is my successor in, in leading the group here at the Geoforschungszentrum in Potsdam. Now, <clears throat> after a few introductory words, I will go through uh, my talk pretty much um, uh, following the logic uh, or the chronology of the different topics that led one to another uh, that I'm trying to uh, that I'm trying to show here, which includes a field project. So that's a case study here in Helsinki. Then some uh, comparative studies of uh, EGS projects in in, in, in Europe mostly. And, um, and then a lab study where we looked at the effect of in injection rate on um, seismic moment release. So just to uh, give you a feel here, uh, this is um, basically the natural and induced uh, uh, seismicity in Northwestern Europe. And um, everything that's white is basically natural seismicity. Here you see the Rheingrab and this is the Alpine foreland. Um, this is the Eagle Graben here, 
And the colorful do, um, circles here are induced uh, events. Coal mining is brown. This is the Rutna copper mine in Poland. And this is potash mining here. And the red dots, the very few red dots are EGS projects where we had induced seismicity either during the stimulation phase or also during the production phase. So um, I just repeat this. Uh, I guess this is carrying olds to Athens, but if we change the uh, effective pressure by increasing the pore pressure here in this uh, Mohr circle uh, coordinates, we will eventually potentially um, hit the failure line and a fault will start a slip. We owe this to these three gentlemen here, uh, Karl von Terzaghi, Marion King Hubbard and Hubbard and Ruby, uh, sorry, uh, William Ruby. And the same problem could occur in the case of production due to poor elastic effects where we may alter a um, stable stress state in such a way um, due to production that we also hit the failure line and the fault will potentially start to uh, to slip. And um, this is a particular problem, uh, not so much in uh, in the EGS projects. We had one project where this occurred, but of course in gas extraction in the uh, Northwestern German and uh, Dutch uh, gas fields like Groningen. Now, um, there are several physical models out that um, predict the seismic moment that's released uh, from induced seismicity, suggesting that this um, maximum seismic moment and the cumulative seismic moment um, somehow relates to the amount of injected fluid volume. So the prominent models are, I give the uh, relations here from Art Megar and from uh, Gallis, um, Pablo Ampuero and co-workers, Shapiro earlier on suggested a similar relationship, and there's some modeling by Novak and Horn, um, so suggesting that there is, um, you know, something like uh, a series of events uh, that are below what Gallis and company called maximum restable magnitude, um, occurring in a stable or pressure-controlled um, rupture phase, uh, which then precedes a runaway rupture. Now, here, this nice plot from Gail Atkinson from a, a review that she and Dave Eaton and a student of them uh, just presented. This is the data that was uh, essentially assembled and collected by um, Gallis and Al and, and, and Art Megar. The black lines here are the prediction for the maximum magnitudes given certain parameters. I, I will not um, detail here from uh, Gallis et al. So the slope is slightly different from uh, from uh, the model here of uh, Art Megar, which would be this this blue line. Now, the blue dots are from these two earlier studies. The orange dots here are from Gail Atkinson's work from 2016, uh, induced seismicity from hydrofrac operations in British Columbia and in um, uh, Alberta. And here, the, the, uh, the, these diamonds here, bluish diamonds, they are uh, runaway ruptures from uh, prominent projects. Probably the most uh, well-known is here uh, the um, event from uh, the stimulation in Puhang in South Korea. So, so there is doubt. Yeah. Sorry? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, we there can hear you. There is some doubt um, that um, uh, these models capture all there is uh, in terms of seismic uh, moment evolution. Now, I would like to present um, the um, the field case uh, that we studied. We had the opportunity to be involved in um, the SD1DP project. That's the first EGS project in Scandinavia, in Finland. Um, the company that uh, drives this project is the largest um, energy company in Scandinavia, SD1. And they 
uh, as a test case, uh, started um, a, a project here in the outskirts of Helsinki, um, here on the campus of the Technical University of Helsinki, the Alto University. And here this picture shows um, the heat plant, the old heat plant of uh, the university. And, um, and this is a drill rig um, that uh, uh, was used to sink uh, the first hole in 2018. There were two wells uh, that were sunk, one in 2018 and one in 2020, and also stimulated during these years. And they're both about uh, 6.4, 6.3 kilometer depth, deep. They both have an open hole um, section at the bottom of about a kilometer that is inclined by 45 degrees here. So like indicated in this in the sketch here. The target formations are at uh, five to six kilometer depth with temperatures uh, that are, um, you know, fairly low still, 120 degrees. The geology is um, very monotonous. Uh, the uh, sedimentary uh, cover is very thin. It's just a couple of meters in places. Most of the rocks are Precambrian granites and gneisses and amphibolites that have been complexly deformed since the Precambrian and um, even more so, so um, in a brittle fashion since um, the post-glacial uplift started of the Fenniscandian shield. So there are multiple um, preferred uh, directions of faults and joints. There's one fault zone uh, that's about eight kilometers away from the drill site that hosted a 2.6 event um, a decade or two ago. And then there is an inactive uh, thrust fault, which is actually right here, uh, just 1.5 kilometers away. The um, uh, stress state was estimated from regional measurements, from seismological data and from um, mini-frag measurements in a pilot hole that was sunk to a depth of about two kilometers and then extrapolated to the six kilometers with, uh, yeah, I give the numbers here. The uh, tectonic uh, regime is a strike-slip regime and the fluid pressure is, uh, is hydrostatic. So we were involved uh, through um, a startup company here from GFZ that uh, was involved in the seismic monitoring, the hardware uh, for the seismic monitoring was um, provided by ACIR, Advanced Seismic Instrumentation and Research Company, headed by um, Peter Mallon. And um, the network consisted out of 12 shallow borehole stations between 0.3 and 1.3 kilometer depth with 4.5 hertz geophones. And then there's uh, 12 deep borehole sensors in this pilot hole that I showed you. Uh, roughly between 2 and 2.5 um, kilometer depth. In addition to this, there was a traffic light system network set up by uh, the British uh, engineering company Arup with 17 geophones uh, for PGB measurements uh, distributed in the uh, entire area of, um, of Helsinki. Now, um, the uh, near real-time monitoring system that we provided was capable of producing uh, locations, um, local um, magnitudes to inform the traffic light system in addition to the P to the to the Arab network within five minutes and if it was required and that was a point that we discussed uh, internally above which magnitude this would happen that there was um, a reassessment of the events manually, then it was uh, would take about 15 minutes. So just a few um, informations about the two wells. Um, the uh, first well is this one here uh, that was stimulated in different phases and separated in individual uh, stages. You see five stages here. Um, the total fluid volume that was injected over almost 50 days was 18,500 cubic meters. And um, the wellhead pressures were between 60 and 90 MPa and the flow rates between 400 and 800 liters per minute. This is what the pumps, uh, there were three Slumberger pumps on site 
could do. And that generated about 27,000 earthquake with magnitudes larger minus one. For the 2020 uh, stimulation, which was essentially, but slightly shallower, uh, essentially parallel to the first uh, well here, there was no um, stimulation in, uh, in stages. So the entire open hole section was um, put under pressure um, the injection lasted 17 days. Uh, it was uh, 3,000 cubic meters, so um, you know significantly less. Uh, the injection pressures, well out pressures, were uh, 70 MPa. That's what the pumps could do, and the flow rates were 400 liters per minute. And um, there were about 2,000 events with magnitude uh, minus one uh, monitored. So here you see the um, seismic clouds from the first stimulation and from the second stimulation with the second well. You can already see that there's almost no overlap between these two clouds. Um, the maximum event that was um, recorded uh, during the 2018 stimulation was uh, magnitude 1.9 and uh, the maximum uh, magnitude of the event that was recorded during the second stimulation was magnitude 1.7. So both stimulations stayed below the red alert of the traffic light system, which was set at um, magnitude 2.1. Um, as I already mentioned, for the first stimulation, five stages, uh, 49 days. Initially, this was planned for 14 days, and you will see in a second how, why this changed. Um, the fluid volume I already mentioned, just to compare, for example, to Cooper Basin, that was 20,000 cubic meter, and the aborted project in Basel was 11,000 um, 11, cubic meters. Uh, the direction of the maximum horizontal stress is north 110 east, so it's roughly um, perpendicular to the trajectory of the wellbore. Now, um, 6,000 something events were um, located in the vicinity. Vicinity means a cylinder around the trajectory of the wellbore uh, of about 500 um, meters or a kilometer, I forgot, uh, within five minutes after the occurrence um, and 10 minutes with manual refinement. Um, the maximum magnitude was that was not exceeded was 2.1. In Cooper Basin, it was 3.7. In Basel, it was 3.4. And then post-processing enhanced the number of events here to 40,000. Uh, with uh, local magnitudes exceeding minus 1.2. And what you see here in this plot are relocated events, roughly 2,000 of those. And uh, what you can see, and I probably should, yeah, this is starting again here, is that there are three clusters that formed during the individual stages. So the red stage was the first one, the green the second, and so on. And uh, what you um, may have noticed is that um, the Packer system, the multi-stage um, injection scheme, just simply didn't work. Uh, we don't know why that is. Uh, either the Packer were leaking, Packers were leaking. This is something that the company that provided the Packers uh, obviously uh, does not believe. Um, there's maybe also a possibility that there was a bypass through the damaged wall rock of the well. We don't know, but you see here that each time uh, there was a compartment activated, basically all the three clusters lit up almost um, simultaneously. So there was a very good hydraulic connection between these different parts of the well. Here you see this again. So um, the largest cluster here formed at the bottom and the seismicity slowly migrated as we've seen in other EGS projects slowly migrated um, towards depths along a southeast northwest um, 
trajectory here in this direction, but also towards a northeast-southwest direction. Um, we assume that uh, these alignments that you see here and that one of them is hidden in here um, are uh, prominent uh, joint and fault systems that are also mapped at the surface and in the extensive underground work that's going on in, in, in Helsinki, uh, where people have noticed that this is one of the prominent um, fault directions. So when the simulation was started, there were really very few events, I think like two or so, um, at an initial increase um, of the wellhead pressure and only after the wellhead pressure exceeded 75 MPA. So the pressure at the wellhead, 75 MPA, was exceeded. So as Misty really started. Um, now, each of these stimulation phases was carried out in subphases. And each time when a subphase stopped, the seismic activity died down rapidly. Now, here what you have is the cumulative radiated um, uh, energy of the seismic events versus the hydraulic energy, PV. And there is this uh, sort of linear increase that you see here um, for this first stage indicated here with, uh, the, red, uh, with the red circles. Now, because everything worked so nicely, uh, the, um, the operating companies sort of suggested that we might accelerate the process um, because, uh, of course, uh, uh, the, the, the pumps um, um, uh, had severe costs every day. So there was a hope that one could accelerate the process by pumping at elevated um, pressures uh, with long pumping periods and the maximum flow rate. So this was done in this uh, second phase until a series of large events forced an early finishing of this second phase because as you can see here, the radiated energy or seismic moment just took off. So the simulation was stopped for a few days and uh, there was some heavy thinking um, in order. Um, and um, so what we did then was that uh, we realized by plotting the maximum uh, uh, magnitudes and uh, the cumulative seismicity with um, cumulative injected fluid volume that we found a trend here for the first phase, second phase, that was, you know, with a little grain of salt, was following one of these gullis lines here. So it was actually, I mean, was, this, was, this could not be coincidence. It was just following these lines here. And we very naively then extrapolated this trend and showed it to the company and said, well, you know, we will absolutely hit the 2.1 traffic light, um, red alert, uh, if we continue to the target volume of 20,000 cubic meters. So we have to do something different. And, um, you know, motivated by these models, uh, the, the thinking then was, okay, we have to sort of reduce the amount of uh, uh, elastic um, energy that we store, different uh, strain energy that we store in the system at a given time. And uh, so we basically have to uh, reduce uh, the pumping rates, reduce the pressures, and that's um, what we did. The severe costs that incurred for, um, for SD1 was, of course, that uh, this would increase time over which uh, this stimulation would occur. And as I said, initially, the planning was for 14 days. Um, it finally was more than 40 days. Now we did this, and um, the well pressure was reduced to way below 90 MPA. The flow rates were reduced to um, way below 800 liters per minute, um, per minute and um, the um, injection plan was changed in such a way that uh, each 18 hour of injection was followed by a 12 hour hold time. And that, as you can see from this plot here, stabilized the injection efficiency. So the seismic output, this slope is constant then. And um, here 
you see that we, you know, suddenly realized with the different phases that we actually managed to stay below this um, this um, 2.1 um, uh, maximum uh, magnitude that was allowed because the risk was that uh, hitting that uh, red alert could produce a similar situation like in Basel where the project was abandoned or in St. Gallen in Switzerland where the project was abandoned due to that. Now, so that was kind of successful. Then a second well was drilled for this doublette. And um, I show here the 2020 uh, stimulation. Again, here the seismicity uh, of the two wells. Um, now, interestingly, there was um, the evolution here. We were very careful when we started. This is the uh, evolution of the uh, of the accumulative radiated, uh, radiated energy here as a function of hydraulic energy. We were very careful in the beginning because we kind of were afraid that the um, fluid pressure stayed in the reservoir at uh, five to six kilometer depths was severely perturbed from the first injection, so we didn't really know what to do, uh, what would be, what was in stock for us. So we started very carefully, and then we realized the evolution is just the same as before, and nothing much changes. Also, there was no difference between the multi-stage and open hole stimulations with regard to seismicity, and also with regard to transmissivity enhancement, which was roughly um, two orders. Uh, during the simulation. So here you see this um, Gallus Megar plot again. Uh, here's Art's um, limit condition. This is Gallus. Um, and they, the curves practically, um, practically overlap. So we then, um, you know, uh, thought about okay, what was um, um, the cause for this uh, successfully, quote-unquote, controlling of the maximum magnitude? Well, first of all, it was the um, excellent communication between the parties, um, uh, then the flexible operating company that allowed us to uh, actually modulate the stimulation ever which way we wanted, and um, um, the injection strategy that was adapted by, uh, guided by the real-time seismic monitoring. But still, the question then remained, why did it work? You know, were we just lucky um, or, or what happened? So uh, coming back to this diagram, we just know that there are events that uh, behave, com um, that there were stimulations that behave quite differently, uh, where you run into a runaway rupture um, pretty early on during the simulation. And uh, so what we did is we looked at the data that was available to us um, where we had seismic data and um, hydraulic data from projects uh, like Basel, the different stimulations in, uh, in the different wells in uh, the geothermal project in the Rheingraben, Sulz, um, the Paralana Basin, um, Pohang, um, the Berlin geothermal field, then the deep drill hole in Germany that was stimulated around 2000 and 2003, KTB, the SD1 project that I just showed you, and Cooper Basin. And then we just naively said, okay, let's not look at the maximum magnitudes. Let's look at the evolution of the cumulative seismic moment as a function of the injected volume. So pretty much what we did uh, when we were in Helsinki. And lo and behold, what we found was for the majority of these sites that there was, um, uh, you know, a long period during the injection um, and the stimulation where the cumulative seismic moment evolved, um, you know, almost linearly with the cumulative volume injected. So it, that's clear evidence that um, there was a long um, period during these stimulations that you could call stable. So where, um, you know, everything that happened was governed by the local pressure perturbation due to the injection and not so much by the um, tectonic stress field 
um, on which this um, perturbation due to stimulation is superposed. So um, there are exceptions. One is, um, I mean, these curves are bumpy and so on. Um, uh, this is Cooper Basin here, where this is clearly not the case, that you have a, uh, a mild slope. And then, of course, there is Pohang. And there's uh, quite a bit discussion. Uh, there was quite a bit discussion about um, the, the magnitudes and so on. The data that I have here in, in this is um, from uh, the um, European project that was involved here uh, and, um, and the data from the report that was um, um, finally published over the Pohang event. And there you can see um, probably even a little bit more clearly when you plot the cumulative seismic moment evolution um, against the uh, cumulative hydraulic energy, that clearly there are cases where um, the behavior is very different. There's nothing like a pressure-controlled phase that you could um, tell from, from these diagrams. On the other hand, uh, this may provide uh, an opportunity uh, that when you have a near real-time monitoring network and you do this very carefully, that you may be able to identify this trend very early on and um, realize that, okay, this thing really behaves quite differently from, let's say, Basel. Now, Basel, of course, at the very end here, had, um, and they had an excellent uh, seismic monitoring system there, had this 3.4 event that occurred. So this is, uh, as is so nicely described in uh, the Gallus uh, model, in the Gallus uh, and uh, co-workers paper, you of course never know when you cross this border between the uh, stable phase and the runaway phase. Um, this is another way of showing the different behavior where we plot seismic injection efficiency, so that's radiated seismic energy over hydraulic energy as function of the cumulative hydraulic energy. And um, you see, for example, in Basel, the output uh, or the injection efficiency even went down just before this event occurred. So there would have been absolutely no chance to, based on these ideas um, and parameters, to, uh, to identify that something, um, something was going wrong. Now, of course, then uh, motivated by, um, you know, the zillion studies um, uh, from the laboratory where people were looking at B-value evolution either in uh, stick-step tests or in um, fracture tests. Um, we also looked at the B-value evolution. This is Helsinki, so they basically happen. There's nothing that happens there. But in Basel, really, you could argue uh, that um, potentially a day before the event happened, the B value is uh, is indeed um, decreasing. So this is a similar trend that you observe prior to fracturing or stick-slip events in, in laboratory tests. Okay, now um, that's what we took away from uh, our um, studies um, in Helsinki and, and, and uh, by comparing the different data sets from the EGS sites. And um, we also noticed in Helsinki um, that um, there was an effect of the injection rate, but then this effect is not incorporated in any of the models. So that motivated us then to start a series of experiments in the laboratory to test the effect of uh, injection rate. And we did this using saw cut samples of a German reservoir sandstone, that's the Bentheim sandstone, it's a gas reservoir in Germany. It's highly porous, 23%. Um, uh, we did use this for, for a purpose. And um, so it has high permeability <clears throat> and it's very, very monomineralic. It's almost uh, uh, 90%. Uh, 7% quartz. We use cylindrical samples uh, that we typically use in our machine, 50 millimeter diameter, 100 millimeter length. Uh, sockets were cut at 30 degrees of cylinder axis. This shows you the sensor layout on the samples that we used. So we use strain gauges here along the faults, uh, along the socket, sorry. 
on one side, and then uh, a set of um, actual and horizontal strain gauge or circumferential strain gauge uh, on either of these halves here on this side and on this side to be able to tell what the um, volumetric and actual strain of the halves uh, of these um, of these blocks are. And the blue dots here um, and, and um, these dots are the locations of the acoustic emission sensors. So here you see the, um, the setup. This is the bottom plug of our, um, uh, of our pressure vessel in the MTS frame. We use a rubber jacket. We cut a hole in the rubber jacket. We have little brass housings in which we place the piezos. And then everything is glued into this rubber jacket and onto uh, the specimen surface, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, brass housings have a conical surface so that it's adapted to the radius of curvature from the sample. Um, we have 16 uh, of these sensors, uh, two uh, along the axis, one top, one bottom, and 14 uh, surrounding the whole thing. And then uh, we record full waveform acoustic emissions and ultrasonic signals that are stored in, a, in this 16-channel uh, transient recording system, protocol system that we have, amplitude resolution 16-bit at um, 10 megahertz uh, sampling rate. And we update the velocity field uh, by using each of these P, uh, piezo sensors as a sender, uh, alter alternating every 20 seconds or so. This is our uh, one of our beasts here in the lab. That's a, an MTS loading frame, 4,600 kilonewtons. It's equipped with a pore fluid pressure system. That's a Quizix pumps here on top, and a pressure vessel that can hold up to 400 MPa. Um, this is um, this is a different cell here. That's a hook cell in there. That's a load cell. Um, we then uh, had the loading steps that we increased the confining pressure to 35 MPa and then a pore pressure to 5 MPa. Then the sample was loaded actually and the piston was then retracted so that we had like 92-95% peak stress. The piston was then fixed so that the remainder of the experiment is a stress relaxation test. This tell, uh, sort of indicates schematically what we did here. Um, then we injected the fluid from the bottom port, uh, port. The top port was closed, so the test was undrained. The mechanical and the hydraulic data were recorded at uh, 10 hertz. The strain gauge data uh, was um, basically split and was recorded with 10 hertz and also with um, up to 5 kilohertz. There were two fluid ejection schemes. Meanwhile, we have done more experiments, but for the purpose here, this is sufficient. Um, so um, there was a fast um, pressurization test with 2 MPa increase in fluid pressure per minute, uh, 1 MPa per minute and 0.5 MPa per minute. Um, uh, so uh, here I just show the fastest and the slowest one. So this is a pressurization phase, and then there's a hold period. The entire periods for all the tests were the, were the same for each of these uh, cycles here. And um, we then, um, you know, corrected um, uh, for stiffness, et cetera, and converted the stresses um, uh, for the inclination of the saw cut. And this is the data for um, the high pressurization rate, low pressurization rate, and um, it's a busy plot. Um, I apologize, the black line here is the stress. So you can see that each time you increase a pore fluid pressure here, that's a red line, the, um, the, the stresses uh, relax. The green uh, graph indicates the acoustic emission rate. So each of these slip events that occurred are associated with a peak and acoustic emission rate. And the blue line is um, the uh, slip velocity and this magenta line is the slip. And here you have the same thing for the low pressurization rate. Um, and you can see from this that uh, the decrease in, in, in stress is, is modulated here. 
um, this is a pore fluid pressure increase, the acoustic emission activity is not so peaked and the slip velocities are also not so peaked as we have here, so it's more continuous. Um, the stiffness of um, the fold is slightly larger, but in the same range almost as the system stiffness, uh, so 75 MPA and uh, the system stiffness 60 um, MPA uh, per millimeter. We estimated the nucleation patch size using various models and if we do that using these models, we end up with uh, a patch size that is larger than the sample size, as is often the case. Um, and um, uh, for, for these uh, uh, triaxial tests here, so from that you would expect that um, the events potentially are, um, are stable. But as I said, we observed these uh, peaked unstable phase um, for the high injection rates. This is a blow up here for the fast and the slow um, pressurization rates. Now, if we look in detail here uh, for, um, uh, this is a pore pressure that was increased and at some point um, with uh, pore pressure increases, slip starts and it has a rapid phase and then a more sluggish phase. And um, the slip velocity is peaked here, and then it's more or less constant. And if you look at the uh, correlation between the uh, cumulative seismic moment from the acoustic emissions with uh, injected volume, there's a cubic relationship here for that slip um, phase, for that fast slip phase, and a linear relationship here. And of course, it's linear for the slow um, pressurization um, rates. Okay. Now, we have uh, plotted this here. I plotted this here for uh, all the different uh, slip stages. Um, so that's the evolution of the um, uh, seismic moment and the mechanical moment, if you like, that is um, deduced from uh, the slip that we have, the area of the socket. Um, and this is here uh, from the acoustic emissions uh, that uh, for which we have a calibration and again you see uh, for the fast um, pressurization rates for all these events this initial phase here with um, a cubic relationship between cumulative um, moment and um, injected volume and then later on a linear phase and linear here all the time and the same is also true for the um, deformation moment. So um, by comparing the acoustic emission moment, cumulative moments with uh, the deformation moment, it's very clear that the, the slip is dominantly aseismic. Now part of that is certainly due to the fact that um, we have a high pass filter in the preamplifiers of the acoustic emission system. So we don't see anything that is um, as low a frequency than 100 uh, kilohertz. What you see from this plot here, the solid lines are uh, for the seismic moment, the broken lines are for the deformation moment. What you see are two things. One, the blue line here is the slow pressurization rate, the red one is the fast pressurization rate. Um, the slope is decreasing over progressive uh, slip events. Um, for the seismic moment, so there's less and less uh, acoustic emission um, uh, moment, basically, um, but it's increasing for the deformation moment. So that indicates that with conditioning of the surface due to the multiple and progressive slip events, we shift the partitioning between seismic and aseismic um, uh, deformation. What you can also see from this plot is that for each individual step, um, of uh, fluid pressure increase, the behavior is different. But if we look at the total experiment, the total moment, um, both the deformation moment and the acoustic emission moment, cumulative, um, there is no difference between these two injection schemes. Now, that motivated us to look into the field data that we have. And this is a plot here 
where we looked at um, the data from Sulz um, and from Basel. This is where we could do this because there we had um, different periods with uh, for each of these injections with different flow rates. So this, for example, here is the 93 injection. These are the flow rates that change between 20 and more than 120 uh, cubic meter per hour. And what we have here is um, basically the ratio of cost of strain over volumetric strain. So that's basically this here. And you can see that the partitioning is not depending on the flow rate. And within this scatter here, if we look at the orange dots, for example, you would also argue that there is no significant um, variation in this partitioning um, with flow rate. Now, coming back to this uh, plot again, another difference that you see here is uh, between the slow injection blue and the fast injection red is that there is a delay for the fast injection before the system responds. So you have to basically inject a certain amount of fluid before this uh, rapid slip event occurs. And this delay uh, decreases as the fault surface is conditioned due to the progressive slip event, so it becomes shorter and shorter. Um, and that already gives you, and we have this delay, of course, uh, both in the cumulative seismic moment and in the deformation moment, and that delay tells you that we are dealing with something that's rate dependent. Now, um, what I did here is, um, you know, in our experiments, we can look at the change in total potential energy from a slip event. Um, uh, we can also look at the po uh, breakdown power density. Um, we, of course, do have the, the hydraulic power. And when you calculate this for the fast and the slow, then I did this here for one slip event, uh, then you see that the total uh, potential energy change um, does not depend on the rate. Yeah, it just um, is very similar. But the dissipation power, so that's the change in potential energy per time, of course, changes dra dramatically, roughly by a factor of four. So it scales with the difference in pressurization rate. And that is also true for the breakdown power density. So it's basically the time derivative of the um, um, energy release rate. Now, I will drag you through this very naive uh, thought experiment here. If you assume that you change your pore fluid pressure, you increase your pore fluid pressure in such a way that you always attempt to stay on the failure line, then you can predict uh, from this simple relationship what the distressing rate would be, okay, as a function of time, because it's linear with the pressurization rate if the condition is uh, fulfilled that you stay on the failure line, mas o menos. Now, for a spring slider system, you have this relation between the slip velocity here and the change um, uh, of uh, the stress per time, and this is the um, fault stiffness. So it's all linear, and um, from this, if this was uh, sort of the condition under which this uh, slip would occur, you would expect a linear change with maximum slip velocity as a function of increasing pressurization rate. But what we observed are these larger blue dots here, which fit nicely to this, um, you know, um, quadratic relationship. So essentially this tells you that the slip velocity, the maximum slip velocity changes with the rate at which you put in um, elastic deformation energy. So, and now I'm uh, concluding here, the uh, induced uh, deformation due to stimulation is dominantly aseismic. Um, the total seismic moment depends on volume injected. Uh, the um, pressure controlled stable growth of seismic moment is in agreement with uh, seismic models. We saw that 
uh, sorry, with models. We saw that in the field examples, not just the, um, the case in Helsinki, but many others, um, there are stable phases during these injections. The lab experiments show that the seismic moment evolution depends on pressure rate and hydraulic power. The high rates promote slip events, the low rates promote almost steady sliding. Slip rate scales with pressurization rate squared and the seismic moment scaling depends on the slip mode. So for uh, stable slip, it's linear. For unstable slip, uh, the relationship is cubic. And with this, um, I like to thank you for your attention and um, thank you. Thank you, George. That was a great presentation. How do I get out of this? Uh, ah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I and to... so now we have time for questions uh, from anyone in the audience. Uh, either you can raise your hand or you can type it into chat and we can read it out for you. Uh, I do have one question, George, to start us off with. Um, the difference between the open and segmented hole uh, between the two Helsinki experiments there, uh, the, the open one had a lot fewer events in it is that because uh when they were yeah, yeah, doing? yeah 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 that's correct um sorry um uh you probably noticed that the amount of fluid that was injected was a factor of six lower than in the packard uh first injection so that was one difference significant difference and the other difference is that the the um maximum pressures the maximum well head pressures always stayed below 70 mpa Whereas in the other case, we went up to a 90 NPA. All right, let's see if anyone has anything in chat or if anyone has any questions overall. What do you think the major rules should be? Oh, someone raised their hand. Uh, Okay. Uh, that was that was me. Yes, excellent talk, excellent talk. My name is Ernie Major. I'm from Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, and uh, we are in the process of updating our best practices for induced seismicity in geothermal systems and EGS systems. And uh, we always emphasize that this is best practices. We, this is going to be used by the regulators to uh, uh, say, this is what we know now, and this is we know what works now. And you gave a very convincing argument about relationships of, of mount injection, you know, volume of injection versus seismicity and maximum seismicity. Uh, however, you you gave some convincing evidence maybe for refining that in terms of like energy released versus hydraulic energy released, and also what your, your one of your latest slides and the change in pressure over time versus slip velocity. Where do you think that would fit on, on best per, best practices uh, versus best science? Uh, uh, oh say scale because <laughs> yeah see what i mean yeah yeah i understand can you hear me yes yeah okay um so thank you for the question um it, i think these are two different ball games we uh the, the the work that we've been doing for um uh in the lab that i showed last um is um um, still sort of, I think, in an early stage. And um, it's not clear to me at this point, to be honest, how we would translate this uh, in a robust way to uh, another scale. Uh, we are actually trying doing that right now. Um, we have um, uh, here in Germany, um, you know, an underground laboratory where we did these kind of tests on the scale of an underground laboratory. You are familiar, I'm sure, with all the work that's being done in, in Aspe, in, in, in Grimsel, in Bidretto, and of course you have the same thing in Colab. So this is a, would be a way of, of testing that. 
for the first part, um, there is also uh, um, an issue. I mean, I'm aware of the work that uh, people are doing, Dave Eaton and so on in British Columbia. And there are many cases where you have hydrofrax, um, small volumes, uh, which exceed um, the upper bounds that are suggested by the models, both Gallus and, um, and also the model from Art, Art Begar. The reasons for that are not entirely clear. So basically what I'm trying to say is that um, you have, may have many more cases uh, that uh, behave in a similar way as Pohang. Okay, so where you simply do not observe during the injection um, an extended period of stable um, uh, evolution of the seismicity or stable fracture growth in the underground, whatever it is. Yeah, and um, and then uh, one uh, would have to sort of constrain this in a better way. But what I what I what I strongly think, based on our experience, is that if you um, provide for a very good monitoring system, yeah, that allows to uh, sort of uh, near almost near real time to monitor also uh, you know low magnitude events and see this evolution. Then you—that's your only chance to actually try to change something um, in the engineering measures. So to basically steer the stimulation. Yeah. There is another caveat that I would like to address here, which is um, why uh, um, I brought this up with uh, with Basel. Um, you're probably more familiar with Basel than I am, but. Um, uh, the, these people were uh, criticized very, very heavily. But as I, I think this plot that I showed um, shows that they have practically no chance. Yeah, right. they, they did everything right. And then this event just happened. And um, so in order to be able to uh, do something, um, even with near real-time seismic monitoring, you rely on the fact that uh, the time difference between what you have done in the injection and what it causes, because they're, you know, the, the fluid pressure pulse just goes into your medium. And if you change something, it's already on the way. Now in Helsinki, this worked out for us because yeah. uh, we found that uh, when we stopped the individual phases, seismicity died down right away, okay? But that must not necessarily always be the case. But um, what happened in Pohang, they stopped the they stopped the injection and 50 days later, a huge event happened, you know, and uh, yes. does the term Dragon King come to mind to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I would argue that, um, uh, you know, based on discussions with people that were involved there, I would argue that possibly uh, the the way the seismicity was monitored was maybe not optimal, and uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so potential evolution that you could see in uh, the how the seismic moment evolved as a function of injection pressure was probably was possibly missed. Let's put it this way. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you. All right. David, I think you have a question as well. Yeah, thanks very much for the talk. That was that was great. I was wondering if you see you showed the different patterns of seismic moment evolution with with injection. I wondered if you saw any differences in the spatial pattern of seismicity that was um, that was triggered as far as you know whether it was going to be a stable process or a runaway process. Um, you mean for the different EGS sites that we compared? Yeah. Do you can you can you see any patterns in the spatial distribution of seismicity that re relate to sort of the stability of seismic moment that you were talking about? Yeah. Certainly, we did not in um, certainly we did not in Helsinki. We have not looked looked systematically in um, in the uh, in the data sets that we compiled, where we just looked at the seismic moment evolution as a function of injection. Uh, volume, so we have not simply not systematically looked into this. But if I, you know, visually, if I remember the clouds and how they evolve, uh, what I know from Zuls, 
I would not think that you, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, if you systematic look into this, maybe you find something. I don't know. Thanks. So what I, uh, if I may just add a comment, you know, what I would love to do, um, and we don't have to do this, maybe somebody else could do it, just update this plot that I showed from the EGS sides, as a, uh, so seismic moment as a function of injected volume for other sites where it doesn't work. I mean, we don't have access to the data from Alberta or from British Columbia, but maybe other people have, and we will be more than happy to share uh, whatever we have. All right, does anyone else have any questions? Well, if not, then thank everyone. Thank you everyone for attending this week's seminar and for George for a great presentation. We will conclude the formal seminar here and in the recording. If anyone would like to stick around to introduce themselves to our speaker or discuss in a more casual environment, you may continue to use this Teams event to mingle and chat. Thank you everyone. Thank you, Colin, for organizing this. Thank you very much. <clears throat>